white hot magazine of contemporary art. Auction House specialist David Norman joins us today from New York City. David is a specialist in modern uh, art, and his field is actually Impressionist and Modern Art, and uh, he was at Sotheby's. He became director of the Department of Impressionist and Modern Art at Sotheby's in 1999, and a worldwide chairman for the division in 2008, and then a vice chairman of Sotheby's North American. From 2019 to 2022, David was chairman of Phillips Auction House in America. David directed sales of artworks from such institutions as the Museum of Modern Art, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, Solomon R. Guggenheim Museum, Museum of Fine Arts Boston, the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, as well as numerous other public and private foundations. In the early 1990s, David pioneered and directed Sotheby's first sales of 20th century German art, staging the first international auction in the then unified city of Berlin. In 2004, David oversaw the auction of the first painting to ever break the $100 million barrier, Pablo Picasso's Garcon a la Pipe. I think that's how you pronounce it in French. Send me an email if that's wrong. Um, in 2010, he curated Sotheby's first private selling exhibition of modern art in Hong Kong and Beijing. Under his leadership and tenure, Sotheby's not only sold the first $100 million painting, but also the first sculpture to exceed $100 million. Giacometti's Walking Man, and the first work on paper to pass that same mark, Edvard Munch's The Scream. Edvard Munch. See, I got that right. I love Edvard Munch. Um, In 2017, David acquired an early pointillist painting for the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam. As a leading industry expert, David has been frequently quoted in publications such as the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg Art News, and Art at Auction magazine. He has appeared on television networks such as CNBC and foreign outlets, including CNN Asia, podcasts, interviews for the Financial Times, China, and is a frequent contributor of articles for several online journals. One of the most recognized auction experts in the field of Impressionist and Modern Art, and a trusted advisor to private collectors for over 35 years, David Norman launched David Norman Fine Art LLC to continue to advise and assist individuals and institutions worldwide. Please welcome David Norman. Today on the White Hot Magazine Art World Podcast, uh, and I'm your host, Noah Becker. Hi, David. Welcome to the White Hot Magazine Art World Podcast. It's happy. Uh, it's a happy. Uh, what was I going to say? Welcome. Is that the way? Is that the best way to welcome a person? I think so. Okay. I think anyway, it's, uh, it's always you? appreciated. Good. <laughs> I'm very good. Thank you. <laughs> good. Good. And you're currently on the Upper East Side in Manhattan. Yes, I am. For the listeners to know where you are, and um, 
So for the people listening in, I'm assuming I might do a little bit of an intro, but um, you have been uh, working in auction, auction houses and contemporary art in a big way for a long time now. Um, and you began your career in 1985 as a specialist in the field of impressionist and modern art at Sotheby's. Um, can you talk about just sort of the beginnings, like what the what your life was like then and how you got involved? Oh, sure, sure. And, and actually my field has always and really still is impressionist and modern, which is, you know, I kind of go up to artists who began their career before World War II. So in my category, which is sort of a sort of created auction category, modern means, you know, I'll handle a 1971 Picasso, but not a 1958 de Kooning, you know? So once you go New York school forward, that's out of my, my specialty field in terms of my auction career. But uh, yeah, I, I graduated um, uh, back in uh, 82, an art history major. And um, I, it was a very different time for getting a, a job. I uh, walked around Soho and that's where the galleries mostly were at the time, handing out resumes. I did internships, you know, places like the new museum, anywhere I could just get any kind of foot in the door, whether it be helping with an exhibition or painting gallery walls overnight, you know, for, with friends who worked at the galleries. And uh, around 85, I saw an ad in the New York Times uh, which is the way we did it. And I was sent to take a typing test. <laughs> I took a test. They sent the results to Sotheby's. I had no idea what auction house I was applying for. And I went there in the role of, if I could put this clearly, the temp of the secretary of the man whose position I held when I left. <laughs> so I, that I was hired during uh, one of the biggest sales of the 80s, a collection uh, from the estate of Florence Gould that had Van Gogh's and great impressionist works. And uh, so I was hired by Sotheby's to just uh, be sort of a temp extra help for it. And when I got into the company and I just felt I was in the right place and just was excited about everything and you know, moved from doing some admin help quickly to doing research and writing about the artworks that moves into learning how to do the valuations, put the sales together, work with the clients. Uh, and then it was just a progression. And when I left in 2016, I was uh, the, uh, the chairman for the division worldwide. Mm. Right. You're, so you became the chairman, worldwide chairman for the division in 2008, um, the vice chairman of Sotheby's North America. Right? Is that what it? Yeah, you know, it's the, that's you know. titles. Hey, at some point, they just give you titles. <laughs> right. right. They're not always descriptive of any mm -hmm. particular function or anything to serve. Right. And, and so what? What moved you from Sotheby, or sorry, what moved you from Christie's to Sotheby's? Yeah, yeah. I, I never mean, was a sorry from yeah. Sotheby's to Phillips. 
That's what right. I well, it was there was an interim step. Um, it was 2016, and there was a moment where uh, Sotheby's was being taken privately. Uh, uh, I mean, it was purchased uh, by the collector and hedge fund Dan Loeb, and at the same time, um, there was this offer of uh, sort of exit packages, and I was one of quite a lot of people who kind of took advantage of it. I had always th you know, thought that one day I would work privately. The, the auction schedule could sometimes be a punishing one. And so I, I took them up on it. I, from 2016 to 19, I worked on my own as a you know, private dealer brokering transactions. And at least half of my time was also spent being an advisor, helping people you know, pick an auction house to sell their collections, some, something I enjoy enormously and have returned to. Uh, and around the time I was working on my own, Phillips Auction House asked me if I would consult for them, you know, when they had early 20th century material and they wanted some additional expertise, um, you know, I would, uh, you know, lend a hand to help them with valuation, sometimes join them to make presentations um, for clients considering selling. And it's a great place. And it was filled with a lot of my friends who also used to work at Sotheby's. Um, so it just felt like a great thing to join a group again in 2019, because I didn't feel I was quite ready to be completely on my own. Uh, and um, it was a wonderful experience. COVID hit immediately. So mm -hmm. even though I was thinking I'll, you know, I'd like to go back and be amongst the team of people, not isolated in my uh, home office, uh, we all ended up being isolated. But um, the experience was still great. And, it mm -hmm. was, you know, working collaboratively. You know. So can you kind of talk about some of the basic differences between Sotheby's and Phillips? Yeah, the, um, I mean, Sotheby's and Christie's, you know, are obviously these, you know, big institutions that are selling in uh, scores of categories. I, I don't know how many tens of different categories of sales each house has from, you know, uh, collectibles, furniture, all types of things into many different periods of fine art. Phillips is focused purely on 20th and 21st century art in I think it's six different collecting categories, you know, fine art, 20th century design, prints and graphics, uh, photographs. Uh, of the three auction houses, they're the leaders in um, watches, extraordinary. Mm. Uh, and jewelry. So it's, it's uh, you know, I, I don't know of a different word to use other than maybe you'd think of it as like a boutique auction house, really very focused on uh, just art of the last century mm. with a special sort of position with uh, very young art and bringing artists for the first time um, to the secondary market at auction, which Christie's and Sotheby's has been following suit, but Phillips has a great reputation for sort of um, uh, introducing a lot of these young artists to the auction market for the first time. Um, so it's, uh, you know, it's a two century old place, just like Sotheby's and Christie's, mm -hmm. but it's got a very sort of uh, 
young vibe and a, and a real focus on this very uh, specific, you know, period of uh, collecting. Mm -hmm. And then um, you've been directing sales between institutions and auction houses for many years. Um, is the dynamic with that more or less working with collections of like older or deceased collectors that are then donating works to museums or how does the interaction work when, when you're directing sales from places like Museum of Modern Art or the Guggenheim? Sure. And there, there, there are two different things when the, uh, in this country in particular, if a you know uh, individual dies with a very valuable art collection, um, you know they'll either you know there'll be a donation to a museum, but more often the case the um, the collection gets sold, um, and the uh, you know the heirs. It's very hard for families to retain the art collections with the value and all the taxes due, so the estate will sell the collection. Um, and when we work with museums, it's more a matter of the museums going through their continuous uh, review, you know, of their holdings and thinking about, you know, some pieces that uh, they consider, you know, kind of uh, appropriate for sale to raise funds to make acquisitions. So when I've worked with, you know, so many of the major institutions, They've been deaccessioning, you know, with, to earmark the funds for purchases, and it really hasn't been a case where the collector passes away, donates, and then the institution is the seller. So, they're they're different, uh, you know, they're different types of sales, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and then the experience differs. You know, mm -hmm. I, I, you you interject any questions. I mean, with the museum, you're you're working with curators so you're working with you know art historians and professionals which I enjoy enormously and you know you know boards that the curators need to go to make their case for the deaccession and the values and you know the choices when you uh, are working for a family you know either to sell their parents estate or you're working for the individuals who may be selling their art or their collections in their lifetime, which of course happens too, you know, then there's, um, there's, a, there's a very personal aspect, a more intimate aspect to, to it, because mm -hmm. you're dealing directly with the individual who sort of mm -hmm. devoted years of their life and their resources into creating something they really loved. And, uh, you know, if it's in their lifetime, you work closely with them about it in the presentation. If they passed away, you work with the family to you know, not just sell the art to its greatest, but to you know, create a fitting memorial to their parents and the collection they built. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, it's both the, the, the interactions are different and also the way you go about, you know, uh, marketing a collection um, varies. Some, some mm -hmm. private families or private individuals don't want to be named. And so therefore the story, doesn't come into a part of it or the biography of the collectors and a part of it and you're focused purely on marketing the artwork exclusively on its own merits not necessarily by association with a collector or collection or an era mm -hmm. so. and um 
so then when you when you broke the hundred million dollar barrier selling uh, the famous Picasso picture, how did that come into the the auction house, and how did you get involved in that sale? Well, that uh, that painting had been in the you know the, the the Whitney family collection, the great beginning with Jock Whitney, the great you know. Um, uh, family so much of the artists and museums you know here and uh great fortune the whitney's uh and we always you know were aware that that uh work the foundation may sell it one day that it wasn't earmarked for museum donation and um everybody was sort of waiting for the first artwork the first painting to make a hundred million dollars and we always sort of kept close, you know, the foundation and the family. And, you know, we always believed, you know, whenever this may come into play to compete for it with Chris against Christie's, uh, whoever wins might be the people to sell the first right. hundred. But what is, what is that competition? Like, how is that competition waged? Uh, it's, it's a pretty complex one because um, first it's an entire in this instance so you have an entire collection you um you know come up with a you know very elaborate comprehensive marketing plan you provide valuations of all the artworks and then you provide you know financial proposals and the proposals you know will come either in in one or both forms being a guaranteed price to the seller or the entity selling uh, we, uh, you know, so they'll, they'll get a certain minimum and above that minimum, there will be certain commissions and earnings to the auction house or no guarantee on the collection and just trying to, you know, give them the best net they can get. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, but usually whenever it's in the state or a museum selling for most part, um, you have to offer a guarantee. And then that's a big commitment. That's a huge mm -hmm. commitment on the auction house you know, to basically, you know, underwrite back the sale. Uh, and so you're competing with, uh, in that instance, Sotheby's with Christie's, as is often the case. And internally, the staff is, you know, assigning the value. You're, you know, trying to game out the possible, you know, outcomes. Uh, work with management as to, you know, how much risk are you able to, take how far, how high a guarantee will you offer, you know, uh, uh, and what will you charge the seller for that guarantee? And, you know, when it's something that prized, you really, you push, you mm -hmm. push hard because it's, you know, the potential earnings, but it's also, you know, the market share, the press, you know, so to speak, the glory, you know, of mm -hmm. having a, uh, like a real landmark masterwork and masterpiece collection. So it's a very, very intense process. Oftentimes the entire collection gets cataloged and you present the uh, sellers with a mock-up of how it will look. You mock up all the advertising. You do a tremendous amount of work, you know, on spec, you know, but you want to show exactly the kind of product you'll make. Uh, and it's... Um, it's, it's a huge effort. It's finance people, it's art and design people in-house, it's writers, it's researchers. You're, you're almost fully cataloging the collection and valuing it. 
uh, in order to make your presentation. So right. if you win, then it just all rolls out from there. If you don't win, you know, you've invested a lot of time, uh -huh. a lot of expense in doing it, but that's right. the game. Was there a public buyer for that Picasso for a hundred million? I don't remember. Uh, no, no, the name was never, uh, never known. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, when I started in, in 85, 86, the market was waiting for the first $10 million picture. That hadn't happened yet. Right. Um, and uh, I think it was finally maybe in 1986, an old master painting by Montagne that made 10. It was the first. Right. So can I ask, what, where does the painting go, the Picasso, after it sells for $100 million and nobody knows who bought it? Does it disappear into the buyer's warehouse? Or I mean, people do you know it's people live with the pictures they i mean for the most part people you know are are living with the um the artworks um you know i mean almost all the major works i've handled are you know in the homes you know of collectors um many it's so nice will be gifted to museums they'll be bequests uh and, uh, you know, I think sometimes people do, you know, things might have moments in storage, mm. uh, but um, yeah, but you know, when somebody spends, you know, sometimes it's known, not often, but sometimes it's known who the buyer is, they're very public people. Um, but most of the time when someone's spending that kind of money, you know, and they aren't necessarily a well-known household name in the art market and financial worlds and, you know, um, then, you know, people understandably want their privacy and their sort of security, you know, uh, you don't want, you know, someone knowing what's being delivered to the house you know, right. in that truck the next day. I'm just saying it's not like Raiders of the Lost Ark or something where there's this giant warehouse and things just disappear. Like if somebody bought the Mona Lisa or something like that, like there would be some kind of public need for the painting to either be displayed or its whereabouts kind of known. Well, I mean, no, that's not the case because there are, um, Let's say I misunderstood you. They're free ports, you know, uh -huh. everywhere, Singapore, Geneva, Delaware. I mean, there are a lot of very valuable artworks uh, that are in storage, very valuable. Uh -huh. So, I, I mean, I don't know if it's, it, uh, you know, maybe there's a Raiders of the Lost Ark right. aspect because yeah, people live in different places and sometimes artworks will be, you know, deposited somewhere. Uh, at a period of time. Um, so uh, yeah, there's certainly big things that come through the public sales that will spend some of their lives in storage. Right. Um, but, you know, there's also plenty that go to homes or that the owners lend to museums and exhibitions. Mm -hmm. So I, I wouldn't quite say like we, right. you know, the auction houses facilitate these huge sales and then the artworks right. are gone forever. Yeah. Oh, I was just curious. The yeah. um, then around six years after this $100 million Picasso sale, you curated Sotheby's first private selling exhibition of modern art in Hong Kong and Beijing. Right. That must have been that, kind of intense. Yeah, that was, that was exciting and that was fun. And that was the, you know, there are these moments in the market where sort of new 
uh, buying groups, you know, sort of start to arise, usually in different parts of the world. When I joined, buyers in Japan were the overwhelming force uh, in the art world, really pushing prices in the late 80s. You know, it's always an international market, but the Japanese buyers were really, you know, so, uh, had such power in the market. We're doing so much of the purchasing. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. And so that when the Japanese withdrew, when there was a recession and the real estate bubble burst and they withdrew, the whole market contracted, the art market really suffered for it. And, um, you know, around that time of that exhibition, um, there was uh, increasing interest coming out of China, uh, you know, proper mainland, you know, as well as continuing development in Taiwan and Hong Kong. And that was starting to become a bigger and bigger part of the, um, you know, the buying base for the auctions. You know, there was also a period short-lived where the Russians had a great deal of influence. There's um, a period where the Middle East, and it continues to as, you know, Qatar and uh, the, the, the Louvre Abu Dhabi as they're doing buying, they've uh, become a big constituency in terms of, um, you know, uh, purchases in the art market. Um, in the US, it was the rise of the hedge fund managers that became a very significant group. But at that time, we were very much uh, seeing the beginnings and eagerly trying to develop the, um, the, the, the international auction trade in China and with um, Chinese national buyers. So that was fun. And it was it certainly proved to be right. And, you know, buyers from mainland and in the surrounding regions, um, you know, started to become, I think for the last few years, you know, uh, even the second most powerful buying group after the Americans um, and surpassed Europeans in terms of the total value works purchased at auction. So mm -hmm. uh, that, that, was, that was exciting, you know, bringing artworks there and, you know, watching that sort of market develop, you know, as wealth kind of explodes in different parts of the world. Um, uh, what will follow is a certain, what happens is the wealth is generated. The individuals will frequently buy their own patrimony. They'll buy their own national art. And then, uh, you know, there'll be a segment at the top that is, you know, very international looking and they'll start having homes in different places and they'll start forming art collections, sort of joining a more global world of, you know, ultra high wealth individuals and, um, uh, and Western European 19th and 20th century art, you know, and just always ends up being of appeal again, whether it's in Asia, South America, Russia, certainly the US and Europe always. Mm -hmm. uh, so my, the field I've worked in has always been, you know, in demand. So let's uh, talk about the first $100 million 
sculpture or to exceed $100 million, Giacometti's Walking Man um, that you were part of. And the Edvard Munch, uh, scr The Scream, you right. were also part of that. So um, let's, uh, let's talk about that quickly. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's fun, the fact that I was, you know, able to be there when, you know, all three of the major mediums artists executed their art and reached that mark. Um, you know, sculpture had always been, uh, like before me and just as I joined, relatively much lower value than the paintings and the works on paper, the unique art, the unique pieces. Um, and I, because sculptures were always cast in editions and, you know, they just sort of were even, even if it was Picasso, Giacometti, the great, you know, artists, their sculpture tended to not really match the levels of what their paintings made. But, you know, like is often the case in the art world and anything where there's this idea of supply and demand and scarcity and rising prices, the market, collectors, people look for where, you know, there's great quality as the greatest paintings became more scarce, you know, certainly the greatest achievements in sculpture, you know, are, are no less important, no less historic. And therefore uh, you would see the demand rise and more people, you know, get more seriously into buying sculpture. Uh, and I think that was the signal, you know, mm -hmm. that, um, you know, that was the case. And also that, you know, establishing Giacometti really sitting atop, you know, kind of the, uh, the pyramid in terms of valuable, you know, uh, sculptors. I mean, a great Brancusi's are, are, you know, worth a fortune and could be more than a Giacometti, but they're so rare. There was never mm -hmm. enough, really much of a supply necessarily to, firmly established a demonstrable market. Um, so then Giacometti, you know, when it came up, it was, even though they're all editions, you know, uh, numbered editions of six and then additional casts, uh, it was such a landmark artwork of the 20th century, uh, there was no hesitation, you know, in chasing it. And uh, the Edvard Munch, the screen really was the, the same thing and, and that, I mean, the Giacometti Walking Man was one of the classic, you know, key subjects and images of his art, but it wasn't the singularly only image for Giacometti. There's the standing women, there's, you know, uh, groupings of figures, uh, but for Monk, the scream is the, the single greatest image known of his body of work. And I think we knew it at the time after the Mona Lisa, the most famous image, most recognized image of Western art in the world. Um, right. So when the owner decided to, uh, it was time to sell that, that was a pretty thrilling moment. We thought just like we had with the Picasso boy with the pipe, the painting that made a hundred, the Giacometti walking man, we thought if there's gonna be something executed on paper, that's gonna make that much, it will be this. And again, in the hierarchy of medium, drawings were all were you know always the lowest you know it would be given the same artist it would be paintings it might be sculpture then you'd have colored works on paper watercolors less mm -hmm. valuable would be inks and charcoals less valuable would be pencils there was a sort of hierarchy of medium but uh you know when you got down to basically 
one of the one or two most famous images of Western art. And of the four versions he created of the scream, it was the only one in private hands still. The other three were in Oslo in the Munch Museum and the National Museum. Um, that was a really exciting, you know, uh, opportunity to uh, work on that. And it was, uh, it was pretty, pretty thrilling. And it was in this instance, it was reported at the time that the uh, collector and financier Leon Black was the purchaser and he put it on loan to MoMA mm. uh, for a period of time. So, you know, there's a, a perfect example of, you know, these great artworks don't sort of disappear forever into sort of the layers of some kind of Dr. No or, you know, whatever mm. that, you know, it, uh, it was publicly known and it's, uh, it's, you know, it's been publicly seen. So, you know, the, uh, you know, our loving world wasn't deprived of the, uh, you know, a chance to see the piece. Mm -hmm. Now, what do you have coming up? Well, now that I've left Phillips um, at the end of uh, June, so I've returned to working uh, privately. And so my work is a sort of an ongoing uh, project. I selling pieces and uh, coming this fall, I'll be advising a few different collectors. Uh, and in the process of, you know, receiving and weighing proposals from the auction houses. Uh, so I'm, uh, I'm back out on my own. Uh, I had a wonderful three years at Phillips, but at this point in my life, I, I decided I finally was ready to, uh, you know, kind of exit the intensity of the auction game and just kind of do things on my own schedule. So right. it's uh, fortunate for that. That's great. Well, I look forward to connecting with you soon. Um, okay. And uh, I hope you have a great rest of, uh, where are we now? Mid-September? Yeah, yeah, we're even coming toward the end of it. So uh, right, <laughs> right, right. Okay, well, thanks for sharing your stories and um, it's great to connect with you and uh, let's be in touch. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. I enjoyed this. All it's right. been terrific to meet you. All right. Look forward to it. Take care, man. You too. Bye. Bye-bye.